Welcome to episode 77 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. We get to speak to retired agent Dan Riley, who served with the FBI for 30 years, six as a photographer and technician in the FBI laboratory, and 24 as a special agent. During his career, Dan Riley worked a variety of criminal cases and helped start the FBI's Safe Streets Task Force program. In this episode, Dan Riley reviews the case of Wayne Silk Perry, a hitman and enforcer for drug gangs operating in the early 1990s in the Washington, D.C. area. Perry claimed to have been involved in as many as 100 murders, many targeting witnesses who dared to cooperate with law enforcement. In addition to investigating violent drug gangs, Dan Riley headed the FBI's Evidence Response Team, ERT, at the Washington Field Office and provided extensive experience and training to others on crime scene examination. Dan is currently an adjunct faculty member at George Mason University in the Criminal Law and Society Department. Dan's interview is truly inspirational, especially when he talks about the dedication and commitment of task force members and the cooperating witnesses who provided them with invaluable information and insights about drug gangs terrorizing their communities. I have to give co-producer credit to Brian Willett, who sent me an email suggesting that I interview Dan Riley. Good call, Brian. Thank you. Before we get to the interview with Dan, I just have a few things that I want to go over with you. I forgot to tell you last week that I was a guest on episode nine of Best Case, Worst Case, a new podcast by retired FBI profiler Jim Clemente and his co-host Francie Hake. The tables were turned, and this time I was asked to review one of my cases, and I spoke about my big charity Ponzi scheme, the inspiration for my next crime novel, Greedy Givers. You'll find Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite podcast app, so please check out Episode 9, The Charming Charity Fraudster and the FBI Agent Who Haunted Him. That would be me. At the end of most episodes, I provide a crime fiction recommendation. This week, I actually have a mini interview with Jim Fitzgerald, the retired FBI profiler who is the inspiration for the new Discovery Network miniseries, Manhunt Unabomber. Did you watch it? I did. By the way, the show's executive producer is Jim Clemente. After my interview with Dan Riley, please stick around for my conversation with Jim Fitzgerald regarding the Manhunt Unabomber miniseries that premiered earlier this week. I want to thank those listeners who have let me know that they've purchased and reviewed Pay to Play, my FBI crime thriller about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play for yourself 
or for someone you know loves crime fiction, you're helping to support this podcast and to defray the cost of me producing ad-free content on a weekly basis. So thank you. Now here's the show. I'm excited to introduce my guest, Dan Riley. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jerry. How are you today? I am good. You know, I was looking at some of the material that I have on this case, and it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, this guy, Wayne Perry, was considered the Michael Jordan of the murder game. That just really blows my mind. Yeah, Jerry, uh, Wayne Perry was uh, one of our most prolific killers in, in D.C. during the time when, when the uh, the violence in D.C. had just gotten completely out of control uh, back in uh, 1989, 1990, 91. Uh, the city was experiencing, you know, uh, just a, a rising tide of, of murders that had sort of started as a result of, of crack dealing, uh, uh, actually nationwide, but also because um, the individual street crews or or gangs in D.C. Uh, just got to a point where they were more and more violent. And uh, the homicide rate got to a point where the D.C. police were just absolutely overwhelmed. It was kind of my job. Uh, I'd started with uh, the first gang case that we had in D.C., which was the R Street Crew, and um, my partner, uh, John Kerr, and some of the other guys on my squad worked on other cases, the P Street crew, and then we also did the First Street crew with uh, my partners from the D.C. police, uh, Angela Parisi, and a couple of other uh, police officers and detectives that were with us. We had formed this, the Safe Streets Task Force to deal with the problems of violence in the city, and we decided that, that we should go after the most significant targets that we could, either the gang itself or the or the gang that was responsible for the most violence. And so uh, after we had been successful in the R Street crew investigation and the First Street crew investigation, which both involved uh, a lot of violence and a drug operation that was fairly extensive, uh, the D.C. police uh, uh, captain of homicide asked me to to take on Wayne Perry. He was somebody we knew, basically from our informant base and our confidential source base, that uh, was supposed to be just involved in almost every murder that happened in D.C. The way they, it was almost impossible for a, a serious uh, drug dealer to be killed in D.C. that somebody didn't call in and say, Wayne Perry did it. Now, so, was he a drug dealer, too? No, he, uh, he really, uh, and that was a, a bit of a, problem for us in, in the beginning stages because there was a lot of intelligence uh, out there that was kind of wrong about him. Uh, they thought of him as a drug dealer, but he really was more of uh, a killer, an extortionist, and somebody that basically used drug dealers uh, and abused them and told them that they had to pay his money to him or they you know, would suffer consequences. And he also ended up teaching a lot of young men in in the city how to be a killer he had a a little crew of guys uh, throughout the city who had sort of learned from him his his particular uh way of of you know using murder to to basically extend his power over the city it was I, that's what i think it really came down to for him he wanted to be in charge and in control 
and wanted to be the scariest guy in the city. And he did that by just intimidating everybody that he came across. When we first heard about him, it was like just a constant number of bodies that there was no real evidence on him, or if there was any evidence, uh, it was usually a, a, an eyewitness, and that eyewitness either refused to testify or left the city or was murdered himself. And so what it came, you know, and that, and that was what the police were having problems with. They had uh, uh, this one murder uh, of a guy named uh, Froggy, named James Henson. They had had an eyewitness to the murder, and she identified um, Perry as the shooter, and they put her in the grand jury to testify. They did everything they could to protect her, but he kidnapped her and uh, and, and drove her uh, over into the southeast section of D.C., killed her, shot and killed her, and, and dumped her on the side of the road. So the D.C. police basically at that point were kind of at wit's end. They were experiencing so many murders that they were just trying to keep up with with the numbers. And they asked us to see if we could take him on as a target, and uh, that's what we did. So who was he murdering? Uh, mostly he murdered, well, I mean, it's kind of difficult to, to say. He murdered a lot of young women, uh, but he also murdered a lot of young drug dealers. And... His claim that most of the people that he killed were in the business or in the game, but it just wasn't true. I mean, uh, he killed um, this young woman, Alveda Hopkins, simply because she had, was willing to testify against him. She had the courage uh, because her friend uh, Henson had been killed, and she decided that you know she was not going to put up with that. She was going to to uh, d- do the right thing, uh, which it was that kind of courage that really focused our attention in D.C. on on trying to do everything we could for the community. The people that were willing to come forward were in her situation a lot of times. They were just fear in fear of their lives. So witnesses were killed. He killed other drug dealers. And he killed a lot of people for really no, you know, no motive that you normally expect. I guess if you and I had ever killed somebody, it would be like in self-defense or we'd kill somebody because maybe they harmed a member of our family and we were just, you know, overwrought and completely out of, out of touch with, uh, with our, our sense of right and wrong. But in his case, he would kill, I think, to exert power, to, to just show everybody that he, would, he had no qualms about taking somebody's life. And when we talk about killing, how many people are we talking about? Well, I mean, uh, the, the informant base that we had said he was responsible for 50 or more killings. Uh, we knew that there were a number of killings that he did with other people. We also knew that he had killed at least three or four people when we first started our investigation because we had really good, solid intelligence on them. We had uh, uh, cooperating witnesses by this point uh, who were t- who were talking to us on a regular basis and really being the voice of the community for us. I mean, you know, uh, people would call them snitches or whatever, but the reality was if we weren't getting their information, we weren't really, we were kind of at a loss as to where to go. Because uh, our investigative efforts, and especially in Wayne Perry's case, you normally try to go out and interview witnesses and try to talk them into cooperating, try to talk them into going into a grand jury, uh, talk them into, you know, giving a full statement about what they saw or what they didn't see. And, you know, that kind of relationship that you have to build with witnesses just wasn't there because they the people were just too frightened. 
we had we had murder unrelated to Perry, but in northeast Washington, where it was a bright sunny day, uh, you know, everybody was out on the stoop enjoying the afternoon, and four guys from uh, the R Street crew just walked up and shot a man uh, dead on the stoop of you know uh, a house that uh, he just happened to be standing in front of. And when we went to do the interviews right after that murder happened, there was nobody that saw anything. And it was just crazy. It was like in the afternoon, bright, sunny day. Everybody saw it. They were all out there. But, you know, the best we could get out of uh, the, the straight-up witnesses was to just say that, you know, they didn't see anything. And so we knew we were struggling with this. And in Perry's case, we thought it was even worse because any time we got – uh, to a point where we thought we were going to be able to get a witness to, to one of his murders, they just disappeared. And the most important case like that, that happened uh, to us on uh, was a murder that happened in Potomac Gardens, which was a uh, public housing project on Capitol Hill. And it was a double murder. It again happened in, in, the, um, in the morning. Uh, two men walked up to two drug dealers, who uh, sold heroin in in Potomac Gardens and just shot both of them dead in front of a number of witnesses. The case um, ended up going to trial where uh, one of Wayne's students, I guess is the best way to call him, uh, Calvin Smith, Ace uh, was his nickname, uh, was charged in the murder. And he was with Perry when they did the double murder. But the four witnesses, the four eyewitnesses that the police had developed and had developed a close relationship with, refused to say anything about Perry. And when I heard about the case, I decided to go ahead and get some of the FBI support to just protecting these these four witnesses. And um, when I had my opportunity, I went and talked to the two. I'd had good informant intelligence that told us you know, how the murder had gone down. And I knew Perry was responsible and was there. And the three or the four women uh, who, you know, were uh, drug users and had their own personal problems just acted like I, they didn't even know who Perry was. Which so they make... told on, they gave you information about the other people that were right. part of the murder, but did not even bring up his name. Right. They would not, wouldn't, wouldn't even talk about him. And, wow. and it was that level of fear that I, I, you know, just realized I was dealing with. Well, when we got to the trial phase of that particular case, which was early on, this was, um, you know, I think we t- we started the the Perry case in in uh, somewhere in 1990. The Hinkle and Menace murder had happened in, in late 1990, and then we started our investigation in December of 1990. So uh, the murder had happened early, and then we got. We got the case, and it went to trial within the first couple of months after our investigation started. And so I, I did everything I could to try to, uh, to talk to these women, uh, to try to get them to start talking about the right thing, but they just refused. And so when they testified in court, the defense attorney knew exactly what the truth was and just basically ruined them on the stand. And so the guy who was actually charged with the case, Calvin Smith, he got off on uh, uh, possession of a handgun charge and was not convicted of the murder even. And I think it was because the four witnesses weren't telling the truth. And it was fairly obvious that from the from the jury's perspective. 
that they, there was a second guy there who actually pulled the trigger, and they refused to talk about it. So um, under those conditions, I knew what we were going to be dealing with. Even if we had the witness and had you know the appropriate information from the witness, we could be struggling all the way until the very you know last uh, part of the investigation when we were trying to go to trial in the case. So, um, Could you tell me a little bit more about how he operated? Because you said something about an extortionist with drug dealers. Could you give me some examples of that? Well, he, uh, one, of, one of the guys that he killed later was a, uh, a really um, well-known drug dealer by the name of Michael Salters. And we had a, I had a confidential source who, he had a close relationship with Salters and was present at, at some party at a concert. And Perry just walked up to him and, and started patting him on the pocket. You know, and this was a this was an older man. He's like, you know, fifty in his fifties, and Perry's patting him on his pocket and, and saying, uh, what you got for me today? And Salters was not a shy or retiring type of person to begin with. But he still gave him money. And that's kind of how Perry operated. He would go up to the people that he knew were making lots of money and basically take money from them by saying, you want me to be your friend. If you don't want me to be your friend, don't give me any money. But if you want me to be your friend, you better give me some money. And if you're going to give me money, I'm not going to go after you. That was kind of his approach to to a lot of the you know major drug dealers in the city. And what type of what, what amount of money are we talking about? Several thousand each time. I mean, you know, you you, you didn't give him you know uh, pocket change. You gave him you know whatever you could. Most of these guys, you know, as you could probably guess, most of these pretty well well established drug dealers would usually have large you know large amounts of cash in their pocket. And that's kind of how he operated. But he also did it at a much larger level. Um, it turned out that there was a big transition period going on at this time where cocaine uh, was uh, coming in from a lot of different directions. And a New York drug dealer by the name of uh, uh, Al- Alpo, Al- Albert Geddes Martinez, moved from New York to, to the D.C. area. And he started supplying drugs to various drug dealers in, in the D.C. area and also in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He got immediately targeted and shot by some Northeast killers that Perry knew but weren't, wasn't really close with. And this put Martinez in a bad position. Uh, he was, first of all, in the hospital and thought he was going to die. So he confessed all of his drug dealing activities to my uh, to my partner, uh, Angelo Parisi. Like and a deathbed confession? It was, it was very similar to that. In other words, he thought he was going to die and he didn't have anything to lose. So, and he just told uh, Angelo everything that he was doing, who he was del- distributing drugs with down in Fredericksburg. And, you know, Angelo was just the kind of detective that would just, hey, I'll take what you, what you give me. I'll give, you know, and, and just let him talk, let him talk, let him get the information. So he did a great interview and, was walking out of the hospital and going to come back the next day because he really didn't expect Martinez to live. But when he came back the next day, Martinez was gone from the hospital. Overnight, he had apparently recovered to the extent that he could from his from his gunshot wound, and he had called up and made contact with Perry, and Perry became his vice president of security. Now, Martinez had lots of money. 
uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, that he made from distributing cocaine from New York down to D.C. He he had a you know strong connection with South American drug dealers through the Dominican Republic, and so uh, he had left DC, or left New York under pretty bad conditions. Uh, there were about four or five people who wanted to kill him up there. He had been involved in in uh, the murder of a friend of a, a major drug dealer in Harlem, and also involved in the kidnap and uh, mutilation of that same drug dealer's twelve year old nephew. So, so, so Martinez uh, needed a place to hide, and he needed somebody to support him who was going to be a you know scary enough dude to where he he wouldn't have to be concerned about his safety, and that was Perry. Can I interrupt for a second because I think sure. I think a lot of people like me are still thinking about this twelve-year-old nephew, mm. this kid that was tortured and murdered, and I know it doesn't have a lot to do with the Perry case. But I, I just feel the need to, to ask you to tell us a little bit more about that, because that is, I've never heard of that before. You know, uh, of the, somebody, mm-hmm. The details about it are, you know, even to this day are a little little sketchy. Martinez was believed to have been responsible for it. But there was a, a drug dealer that, Mar- that worked with Martinez, and I want to say his nickname was Preacher. Uh, he had actually snatched the child. While Martinez was, you know, living the good life down in Florida at one point, and everybody believed that it was um, uh, Martinez getting back at this Harlem drug dealer by by snatching his nephew and basically threatening him that if you don't, you know, leave me alone, I'm going to kill your nephew. Well, apparently the Harlem drug dealer decided not to leave uh, Alpo alone. And so Preacher then, this is my recollection of it. It was pretty pretty well known uh, up in New York City, so there may be somebody uh, in New York City that could actually give you more detail about it. But when this drug dealer decided not to to give any, or to leave Martinez alone, Preacher went ahead and killed the kid. Mm. At that point, Martinez was believed to be responsible for the murder, even if he didn't do it. In other words... So the drug dealer in in New York City, who was pretty high up and had a lot of contacts uh, throughout the city, uh, had decided that Martinez was a dead man. Okay, and, so now we now we really understand why he had to leave New York. Yeah, why he fled to D.C. And that was that was you know uh, there were other issues involved with other violence, and it it really had to do with the fact that Martinez was kind of at the top of his game as a drug businessman. But he had made a lot of people angry with him. This guy, the, the the one I'm talking about who had the nephew, was at one time Martinez's partner in the drug business. So it was all, you know, a typical, I guess you'd call it typical, uh, falling out between criminals that uh, that led to all of this. But, uh, you know, unfortunately the child was the victim in the case. They They made the deal where... Perry never had to, you know, touch drugs or do anything of that nature. Because of uh, Martinez's uh, need to keep hidden, the two of them came, became like vampires. Like they never showed up during the daytime anywhere. They would show up late at night at clubs and uh, and basically do business, you know, from about midnight till about four or five in the morning, and then go hide off in, in a uh, hotel room somewhere, or you know, they ended up getting some pretty well hidden apartments. So 
that made my investigation that much more complicated because I had no real way to, to even target him for surveillance, target Perry for surveillance. So what I what we did was we said with the information that we had on the drug dealing from, from Detective Parisi, he uh, got up with uh, Scott Yao from our drug unit, and they put together an indictable case in Fredericksburg, Virginia, on uh, Martinez. I knew that we had to get him locked up so that Perry would kind of resurface and, and start living a little bit of a normal life so I could, you know, start working an investigation, you know, appropriately against him. So Martinez was, in that respect, just simply hiding out in D.C. He had to continue to operate. He continued to have a good source of cocaine. So he had plenty of ways to make money. But he needed somebody, you know, to protect him, and he needed some way to keep hidden from the drug dealers in New York. Now, this became important to us later uh, on another murder that Perry ended up doing. So we're looking right now at, say, the summer of 1991. Yeah, summer of 1991. By this point, Perry and Martinez were directly connected. They were like twin brothers, you know, going out every night. And Martinez had four or five people that he was distributing drugs through and just getting his product out on the street and making lots of money and making Perry a wealthy man in the in the process. So my best approach was to develop as many informants as we could to try to get us information about getting Martinez. Still in the back of my mind, I knew we weren't going to make it with the help of just regular civilian witnesses. We were going to have to use forensics and all of the other resources that we had at our disposal at the time. But what I didn't realize was Martinez was in this vice. If he ever got arrested by us, he was going to, you know, he had to make a decision whether he was going to cooperate with us or go back to New York and face death almost immediately. Because uh, even if he was sent up there and put in a in a prison or in a uh, jail awaiting trial on this murder kidnapping case, he was he was cooked. Everybody said that he would get killed as soon as he hit a jail in New York City. So that was that was something I didn't really account for in my case. I just. I just had this gut feeling that we needed to get him out of the way. And so we had a we developed a really good informant that told us exactly where Martinez and Perry were living and exactly what time we could get Martinez out in the open uh you know with a chance of really arresting him. And that informant came through for us and uh we arrested Martinez right after this series of murders in the summer. We knew that uh, Martinez and and Perry were responsible for the murder of Demencio Benson, Michael Salters, the drug dealer I was telling you about, and these were both in, in July of 1991. Then they were responsible for the murder of Evelyn Carter, and then responsible for the murder of Yolanda Burley, and then Alveda Hopkins, the young woman who had, who had testified against Perry. He finally got around to killing her. So all of this happened the summer before we locked up Martinez. We had a couple of breaks that happened right around that same time. We recovered a, a Q45 Infinity that Perry had gotten in payment for another murder he had done almost a year earlier. And then uh, in that Q45 Infinity, we recovered a uh, on, uh, the weapon that was used to kill Michael Salters. So that was the first P45 
piece of solid forensic evidence that we got that we knew would connect him with all of these string of murders that we knew they were responsible for in in the summer. The next thing that we found out about was a um, a Mazda van that they were driving around and using as kind of a uh, the, the the FBI laboratory referred to it as a murder van. <laughs> when we <laughs> great, <laughs> yeah, when we recovered the van, uh, we had been told that it had been cleaned um, after the murder of Garrett Terrell, one of the uh, drug dealers that worked for Martinez, and we had. Um, uh, our forensic team go over it, you know, top to bottom. And they really said that it looked like more than one person had been murdered inside the van. But we wow. they, we did recover a bunch of blood off the, the back of the front driver's seat. And so I thought, based on the information that we started to develop about how the murder happened, that that blood should have been Garrett Terrell's blood. But unfortunately, we ended up with a uh, with a lab report that said found on Terrell's body was unique carpet fibers from the van. Not only carpet fiber fibers from the storage area of the van, which was the back uh, sort of uh, baggage compartment of the van, but carpet fibers from the front part of the van. So, in other words, two sort of unique styles of carpet fiber that were on Terrell's body. On, on so you knew in definitely the van. he had been Yeah, we knew he had van. been in the van. And we also found in the van fibers from his clothing that he had worn that night. And we also found his fingerprints in the van. So we knew he was in the van. And, of course, they left him, shot him and left him out in the park up in Rock Creek Park. And they stripped him down to make it look like it was some kind of sexual assault against him. But it was, you know, very simply a homicide where they just were trying to make it look like it wasn't them who killed him. So that was how uh, we were starting to put the thing together in terms of forensics. But it was frustrating for me at the time because DNA was brand new in terms of usage in our in our cases. And at that, you know, at that point, I was frustrated by the fact that we didn't have Terrell's DNA inside the van. And we couldn't find any DNA from the Q45 Infinity that we had. So I knew anything we came up with, we were going to have to have significant uh, forensic evidence to prove a case against Perry because we really were in a position where we weren't going to be able to rely very much on uh, civilian witnesses, regular witnesses. Because these these murders that I'm talking about, uh, there was only one murder that was done in front of people, and that was the murder of Domencio Benson. And it was at a basketball tournament up at uh, 7th and Oak, uh, Northwest D.C. And there were 100,000 people there, not 100,000, but there were thousands of people at this tournament, and nobody saw anything, of course. So, so that's so, how fearful, fearful people were of Yeah, and, and, and it was a murder that was right out in front of everybody. But interestingly enough, Benson was a New Yorker. And the reason that he was killed was because he had spotted... Martinez, and Martinez knew who he was, knew that he would immediately call the guy in New York who was out to gu- who was gunning for him. So Martinez told that to Perry, and Perry said, don't worry about it. And that's how it, how, how it proceeded, and that's how Benson got killed. Now, the murder of Evelyn Carter, 
she was a girl who was, I guess the old term was the paramour, <laughs> to a lot of uh, the local drug drug dealers. But she was a nice young woman, but she refused to... I tried to interview her once and tried to get her to give me information on a drug dealer, and she just refused to ever cooperate with the government. She says, you don't understand. The people that I have, you know, social relationships with would just completely cut me off if they ever found out I was talking to the police. But she was killed because she refused to have sex with Perry. But Perry Perry told Martinez that she was killed because she was snitching. Well, she wasn't. So, again, it was one of these. And then, of course, Alveda Hopkins was murdered because she had testified against him. Yolanda Burley, who was the other young woman who was killed and left on the Interstate uh, 295 on the side of the road, she was killed because she had the temerity to ask him who he was and what he did for a living. She must be a snitch. Why would she ask me any questions? So he killed her. So he killed her. I have just done, uh, you know, a number of episodes about serial killers. Is he a serial killer or is he a contract killer? I, it, I mean, he just thinks of whatever reason. He's killing people for whatever reason he feels is appropriate. That, that's what I keep coming back to, uh, Jerry, and I, I think it really comes down to that. I think he was trying to exert power, that he just wanted power, uh, almost the the. the the sense of fear that everybody had for him, he, I think he thrived on that. Now, what was interesting about that was if you met him right now, you would be amazed at how pleasant, how funny, and how respectful of a person he is. I would be. I would be amazed. I, I, it would he, doesn't, be, he doesn't sound like that type of a person at all. I, when, uh, he is probably the the most respectful person I ever arrested in my career. Just yes, sir, no, sir. Um, and I started to do my interview, and he said, you know, Special Agent Riley, I'd love to be able to talk to you right now, but I want to go through all this court stuff first and see where we are before I make any decisions about that. I mean, you really can't ask any, you know, a really bad criminal to be any nicer than that, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I apologize for not being able to give you an interview at this time. Exactly. Oh my! That was the approach that he took, and I was like, I was like blown away. I mean, I, I have uh, interviewed some, you know, some nasty people in my career, and most of them were nasty when you talked to them. Uh, but but this guy was incredible and and funny. Uh, always had you know a pleasant you know story to talk about and jokes to tell and that kind of thing. I mean, I, I guess the, the 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 best word to use it, both he and Martinez were two of the most charismatic people that you'd ever know. Clearly, they were successful at what they did, but they were successful based on the fact that they had a way to manipulate people. They had a way to work people, you know, uh, to their to their side of the story. And I found that over and over again with Perry, especially in dealing with some of the women who were his girlfriends. And he had maybe six to eight girlfriends that I knew about. But he also had a couple of boyfriends. Okay, okay. Including, including Thomas Dozier, who was one of the uh, people that was, he was... Thomas Dozier was the actual man who pulled the trigger on Evelyn Carter. That's kind of an interesting murder to tell the whole story about. And I'll, I'll go ahead and try to try to 
sort of explain it a little bit to you. But uh, Perry had decided that Evelyn Carter needed to go, but he also decided that he needed to get this guy, Thomas Dozier, who had been a cellmate of his in Lorton Penitentiary, to prove himself. So he he gave uh, uh, Dozier a gun and told him to go kill uh, Evelyn Carter, who was going to a concert at the DAR Constitution Hall, you know, like two blocks from the White House. And so uh, Dozier waited for Carter to leave the, the Constitution Hall concert, walked up to her on the street, and shot her a couple of times in her upper torso. And she just fell away from him and, you know, fell down on the uh, sidewalk and started to bleed out. He sort of waited around to see what would happen because Perry had said, make sure that you kill her. And uh, the ambulance came and took her away. And so he went and told Perry that. Perry said, well, you didn't shoot her in the head? And she and, and uh, uh, Dozier said, well, well, you know, I shot her. She's dead. He says, but you didn't see her die. You didn't see her, you know, you didn't put a bullet in her head. And he goes, well, no. He's, and Perry got angry and upset with him and started yelling at him. He says, you can't kill anybody unless you shoot him in the head. And he walked up to a man just a bystander who didn't, they had no connection with, who happened to be talking on a, uh, uh, a public telephone and just shot him in the head and said, this is how you kill somebody. All angry at, at Dozier for not doing it the right way. Well, of course, Evelyn, evil. Yeah, Evelyn died in, in the hospital at George, George Washington University Hospital and almost immediately. I mean, there was no you know, issue about it you know, uh, of her surviving any. But the bottom line is, is that's how Perry operated. In other words, if you were going to be one of his close associates, you were going to do it his way and make sure that you follow his, his rules. Of course, we didn't find out about it until, you know, later when, when Martinez uh, ended up rolling and cooperating with us. And why did Evelyn have to die again? To be honest with you, the, the best reason I could come up with is she decided she wasn't going to have sex with Wayne. You're getting back to that issue about whether he was um, whether he was a serial killer or not, and uh, I did broach the subject with the uh, behavioral science unit, and I thought they really needed to talk to him. They really needed to get some sense of his his mindset. And when I brought it up to them, they said, "Well, you know, he's uh, involved in narcotics, and he's a hitman for them, right?" And I went, "Yeah, but you know, some of his motives for murder just don't square with." like the so-called business motive that you expect to hear from a hitman. And so they said, well, at that particular point, they defined a serial killer as somebody who was a psychosexual killer. And they they couldn't define Wayne that way. Wow. When the BAU told me that, I said, okay, fine. Um, you know, so I didn't pursue it anymore with them about whether or not they should follow up, you know, just in terms of getting a... Um, uh, psychological profile i did the best i could uh as a case agent i had you know i i had psych 101 and a couple of things like that in college but that was about it so you know uh i was just amazed by the guy because of his unbelievable uh, need to, to to exert power and his you know lack of any real motive to a lot of his kid you know a lot of the murders that he did yeah and his lack of remorse he he oh, seems that, yeah. to be I mean, when you think about a sociopath, it's somebody who who feels no remorse for 
exerting, you know, violence against somebody. And, and he had to be. If he was responsible for at least 50 murders, you would think that that would be a mind that they would want to assess. I, you know, that that's what I thought at the time. But they're, you know, obviously got they have a different different set of criteria than I understood. So when uh, when we had uh, Martinez in custody and we had him in custody for about two or three months, he started to cooperate with us. We really started getting that corroborative information about many of the murders, and we were able to put together with his cooperation a factual sort of format as to how each case went down. Because we ended up wanting to charge all those summer summertime murders, and and that's what we ended up doing. We charged them all. Uh, Martinez pled to fourteen murders, and we ended up having him go through all of the the DC murders that he had done with Perry and ones that he could remember and details that he could remember. But he also knew about other cases that Perry had done that he was aware of, but didn't have any firsthand knowledge. So it. Once we had that information and we started putting our case together where we had the physical forensic evidence verifying everything and we developed a couple of more uh, insiders that cooperated, a guy uh, by the name of Jerome Kearney who owned the murder van that I told you about earlier. So let me ask you about the murder van. Okay. All right, so you found fibers uh, of the van on Garrett Terrell and you found fibers from Garrett Terrell's clothing in the van. Is that all you had to tie? Well, we had we had his fingerprints in the van too. And that's right. Uh, and and then of course we had um Martinez who was driving the van saying, Yeah, well, you know, I was in the driver's seat, uh Tyrone Price was in the passenger you know, the front passenger seat. Wayne was in the second seat of the van with Garrett, and Garrett was in the second seat of the van. So it was Wayne and Garrett. And then there was um, uh, Jerome Kearney, who was in the back seat of the van. And if you know how these vans are, they have that little area where you open up the sliding door of the van, and you have a little open area that you can either jump into the second seat or you can go into the back seat. Right. And so when... Martinez is talking about the murder. He's basically saying it that he's seeing what happened from looking in the rearview mirror because he was driving at the time. He said, and "How he heard, did they murder him?" Well, they they picked him up at his home and told him that they were taking him. He was going to go with them. That they were going to do a caper. In other words, they were going to go murder somebody else. And so he joined. You know, he he was happy to join them. They had found out that he was going to start selling drugs for somebody else instead of Martinez. And they didn't they didn't appreciate that. And they thought that that he would steal from Martinez. This was all their their informant information whatever it was usually came from young women who knew these guys who would tell them what these, you know, associates of theirs were planning so that, you know, they could feel comfortable that they were, you know, being treated properly by their drug associates. But in Garrett's case, apparently Garrett wanted to move up and out from under Martinez's thumb and was going to go and, and get another drug supplier. So that made uh, uh, Martinez angry. And, of course, if Martinez was angry, that meant Perry would, you know, would take care of business for him. So that was, that was the plan. Pick him up, make him think we're going, take him, taking him with us on a caper, and we'll just kill him. 
So Martinez said it all worked out perfectly. Uh, Wayne pulled out his gun and shot uh, Garrett a couple of times in the torso and then shot him two times in the head. But you said you didn't find any blood on that front seat. Well, I'm thinking when we first initially heard about the murder that this huge amount of blood, which was on the back seat of the driver's seat, I thought that would be Terrell's blood because, you know, they had to stash him there for a while until they drove up into where they were going to dump him, to their dump site. It never occurred to us that we had missed the blood site, you know, completely inside of a small van like that. But as as it developed, we ended up making a case against the owner of the van, Jerome Kearney, who was in the back seat of the van. He said, yes, that's exactly how it went down, but Wayne pushed him over into my lap where he says that Terrell just bled mostly in my lap on my clothing. And I said, well, so he bled right there at that particular point? He said, yes. This was, of course, months later, because it took us a while to put our case together on Kearney. And Kearney said, well, um, I think the only place that his blood could have ended up would be down in the wheel well in the uh, passenger side rear wheel area. And so I went back into the van uh, after all those months that we had had it, and went back into the uh, wheel well area, and sure enough, there was a whole you know pool of blood down at the bottom of the wheel well in that part, and I recovered uh, several you know blood samples from that pool of blood, and resubmitted those for the DNA, and of course it matched Terrell, and that's really kind of what really closed the gap on the forensics that we had. Because by this point, we had recovered, I want to say, two and possibly three other vehicles. Uh, Alveda Hopkins had been killed in a vehicle. Um, um, Yolanda Burley had been killed. Yeah, so it was just two other uh, vehicles. So we found the vehicle that Yolanda Burley had been killed in, and we found the vehicle that Alveda Hopkins had been killed in. And they had both been shot in the van or in the uh, front seat of a, uh, regular sedan, and both had bled down into the uh, back back of the front seat, and so we recovered DNA from those two victims from those two vehicles, and of course we identified those two vehicles as a result of information that we got from Kearney and from from Martinez. So uh, that way we corroborated significantly corroborated their testimony where they said, you know, uh, the reason that you can believe me is because, you know, these are the vehicles that we told the FBI about, and sure enough, the FBI located the vehicles. And we, you know, this was months later, and we got their blood out of these old, they were old hoopty, what, you know, what what D.C. Street vernacular referred to as just old beat-up sedans that, that uh, people used pretty regularly for almost anything, and in this particular case, they used them for those two murders. So with that kind of forensic evidence, now we had DNA from three of Perry's victims inside vehicles that we knew he had used and had his uh, fingerprints in, and we also had a corroborating testimony from his, uh, his co-conspirators. That was, to a large extent, our case. I mean, we... we we're developing these cases uh, using the forensics, using uh, the information that we were getting from these, you know, incredibly courageous informants that we had, 
and all of that was coming together for us, but I don't know what you'd call it, the street smarts, but it was, in some cases, brilliance of some of the strategy that was going on between the drug dealers was kind of amazing when you think about it. In Perry's case, for example, he didn't trust Dozier, okay? And he was put in jail for a short time in Prince George's County. We held him on a, a really sort of a... Uh, a low-level drug charge in in Prince George's County just while we were getting our ducks in a row to to charge uh, charge him with the big uh, indictment later. Right. And while he's being held in custody in Prince George's County, he has uh, a young man named Sean Branch that comes and visits him in jail. Well, when I saw Sean Branch's name on the visitor's log, because I was, you know, constantly monitoring Perry's activities in prison or what or jail or wherever he was, I just was like, what the hell is he talking to Sean Branch for? Sean Branch was another one of these really sort of prolific killers in D.C. that we had, as a squad, had targeted. Um, what I found out later was that Perry had told Sean Branch that Thomas Dozier needed to be killed and they could probably get Michael Salter's nephew to do the murder just by telling him that Dozier was the one responsible for for Salter's murder. Wow. And so that's the kind of intricate strategy, if you want to call it that, that was going on. And th- this actually did happen. Uh, oh, it worked. Oh, yeah. Uh, Daryl Salter's, who was Michael Salter's uh, nephew, uh, almost within days of that meeting between Sean Branch and Wayne Perry in, in jail, um, went to uh, the uh, Benning Road uh, apartment complex that uh, that uh, Tom Stozier was living in at the time and just shot him about 50 times, uh, you know, with an assault rifle. And, you know, again, out in front of God and everybody, but, of course, nobody ever cooperated on it. Um, but... That of course made us lose our opportunity to 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 put pressure on uh, on Dozier because we thought we'd be able to get Dozier to cooperate. But it, it I have I have to ask this I I have to ask this question and I think everyone listening is asking you know wanting to to ask the same thing and that is why did somebody just kill Perry? Uh, you know. People that were would be willing to kill Perry would have had to have done almost as much work as I did <laughs> locating him. He just wasn't that available. When he was out, you know, hanging around with girls or going to nightclubs and all that kind of stuff, he had an entourage of guys around him who were ready to, you know, to go to war if, if need be. And that was pretty much how he operated. So it wasn't like you could just walk up to him in a club and shoot him, which would have been your only chance to get him, because nobody knew where he lived. I mean, uh, we didn't find out exactly where he was, in quotes, living until after we had him locked up for about three months. You know, he had girlfriends, but they changed every night, and according to uh, uh, Martinez, they would spend a lot of times just going to hotels at night, staying in a hotel, you know, frequently at night. So it it wasn't like he was somebody you could, uh, and the term that that all of the thugs on the street were using was 
wasn't like you could clock him. You could, you know, see where he was so you could decide when to kill him. So uh, for that reason and that reason alone, I think Perry, you know, protected himself and was capable of doing it because he knew uh, what to avoid because he would he knew how to clock people better than probably anybody in D.C. So that's what it came down to. I mean, there were a lot of old-timers who used to, you know, uh, uh, old-time drug dealers and that th- sort of thing that I was talking to who just said, ah, he's just a punk. Well, okay, all right, if he's just a punk, then anybody can get him. But, you know, he was a pretty violent punk. And, uh, you know, when it came right down to it, he wasn't that easy to get at. Once we had those guys all nailed down, then we were ready to go with with our indictment. Perry pled guilty to uh, five CCE homicides, which are um, uh, murders in the furtherance of a continuing criminal enterprise. Uh, It's a sort of a drug homicide, for lack of anything else you'd call it. But uh, once he pled to those, uh, the plea agreement was that he would get life without parole and never have the possibility of parole five times, and that he would never be charged with anything in D.C. again. And so I began at that point to go and try to conduct interviews with him while he was in custody. In the first place that I talked to him was down in Petersburg, Virginia. And I used that sort of nice approach that he had said to me, uh, you know, saying that I'd love to talk to you about all this, but, you know, I have to wait till all this court stuff goes. So I basically took him up on that. I said, Wayne, why don't you tell me about all the cases that you were responsible for, and that way nobody else will get, get charged with anything that you did. He said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. He said, so So we talked um, for the first time down in Petersburg, Virginia, and it was uh, several hours, several-hour interview, and he told me at that point that he was responsible for at least 50 homicides and that he would talk about cases that he personally had done, but he wouldn't go much further than that. He wouldn't talk about murders that he had done with other people, which were fairly extensive. So I took down... And why was that? Well, he was not going to snitch. That was his, you know, moral, uh, ethical uh, standard. (laughs) He wasn't going to snitch. He could could murder and torture and kill people, but But morally and ethically, he could not see himself snitching. Right. So he he liked the idea of closing the cases because he didn't want anybody being charged with anything that he had done. And so that's the approach that I had with him. And, you know, I'm looking at at that point, he's saying 50 homicides. A couple of things happened after that interview, but he ended up getting transferred from into the uh, custody of the Bureau of Prisons. And they sent him first to uh, Marion, where he was the um, uh, cellmate for uh, John Gotti. And then they ended up shipping him from Marion out to uh, to Florence, Colorado, to the Supermax out there. And so it took us uh, until the, he got shipped to Florence, Colorado, where we could actually arrange another interview with him. And by that time, I had uh, we we our, our squad had been working on another case of some of Perry's associates in the southwest part of D.C. And I had uh, worked on you know this one close associate of Perry's by the name of Vincent Hill. Vincent Hill uh, was out selling marijuana one day, and I drove up on him uh, to do a jump-out arrest on him. We knew he had a you know, bunch of marijuana on him, and we were just going to arrest him to sort of develop more information and intelligence about our case 
against him and the rest of the Southwest crew. But uh, I knew he would run from me. He ran in a direction that I didn't expect, which was right at me. And I clipped him with my car and flipped him up over the hood of my car, and he landed on a concrete abutment and and apparently broke uh, broke a rib. And when I you know jumped out of the car and put him under arrest, he was spitting up blood. Well, you know, at the time, it didn't occur to me that the guy was anything but stupid. But on the other hand, you know, I didn't really want to hurt the guy just for an arrest. So, uh, you know, we, we took care of him, sent him to the hospital and all that kind of thing. When I go out to Colorado, this incident had already occurred. Perry is mad at me because I almost killed his friend, he said. Oh. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, <laughs> I, just, and I told him, I said, I said, Wayne, the guy ran out in front of me. I had, I had no choice. He, you know, uh, he, he, he ran into my car more than anything else. And at that particular point, uh, Perry started laughing. He said, yeah, yeah, he does stupid stuff like that. So then we we immediately got into that rapport again, and it was amazing. I mean, initially he's angry at me, and then all of a sudden he's Mr. Nice Guy again. That's when he told me that he had actually done 100 homicides with him, you know, personally and with friends over the years. And so he ended up, between the two interviews, gave me uh, – details enough to close about 30 homicides. And so that's kind of where it sort of ended because by the end of our, I think our second day of interviews out in uh, in um, Colorado, it started to occur to him that if he ever was able to get dropped down from, you know, his incarceration at, um, at uh, the Supermax, if he was ever going to go to like a regular penitentiary like Lewisburg or Atlanta or, you know, uh, any of the big major federal penitentiaries, that uh, he wouldn't be able to, to list all of the people that he killed because he would be uh, in conflict. There would be a conflict uh, with all of the people that he had killed over the course of his lifetime where he'd never be able to go to a regular prison facility. Because he thought Meaning we were friends and associates, friends of and them? family and associates of his victims would be everywhere in in the federal correctional institutions, which you know, to be honest with you, was pretty likely. But you know, that was his his statement where he cut us off, where he wouldn't talk to us anymore. But you know, uh, as a result of it, we were able to close those cases and give some of those uh, families a little bit of, I wouldn't call it closure, but a little bit of sense of justice. In other words, we. I, I talked to a couple of mothers and fathers and just told them, you know, this guy killed your son and he's in prison for the rest of his life and, you know, this is who he was and this is how he did it and why he did it and all that kind of thing. Did he ever tell you how this all started, how he got into this business? Yeah. He right. told me about the first murder he ever did and it was a very strange murder, but a case that I, you know, to be honest with you, I've never been able to prove or verify, but the details were such that I feel like it happened exactly like he said. But he was 14 years old, and he was running a little group of hooligans, I guess is as good a term as any, who were stealing uh, purses and wallets from, uh, he called them old ladies uh, who were government employees around southwest D.C. And he would take their their wallets and their purses and give the credit cards and the identification information to his cousin, who was... uh, 
it it sounded to me and and I verified it later when I I did a uh, criminal check on his cousin was a uh, uh was involved in in check boosting or or you know fraudulent uh ID stuff and and busting phony you know credit cards and all that kind of thing he was doing all sorts of scams on banks at that time and he was involved in it with, as a partner with with another older guy he would take the stuff that Perry and his little crew of guys would steal and he would you know put it to good use in other words Perry and then pay Perry and his little crew of guys money but Perry again wanted to control this little group of of thugs that he had working with him who were all just basically Southwest, you know, juvenile delinquents in D.C. So his cousin said to him one day, uh, I need you to kill my partner. And Perry looked at him and said, why me? He says, because if if you kill him, uh, they won't do anything to you. They're, they may send you to, to uh, uh, juvenile jail or something like that, but it won't be anything bad. And, you know, you've never been arrested for anything, so, you know, they won't even know you're, you know, you're with it. And Perry said, well, I'll do it if you give me a gun, and I can keep the gun because I want to be able to threaten my my partners down here, the, the guys that I have working for me. And so the cousin agreed to it and gave him a gun, called him to go to the northeast section of D.C., uh, an area called Woodridge, which is a neighborhood up off of Rhode Island Avenue, and meet up with him and, and this guy that was the intended victim. Uh, Perry said uh, that I was supposed to just stay there with the guy so that my cousin could go off and get him uh, develop a uh, uh, an alibi, and then I was supposed to ask the guy to, to buy me an ice cream or something like that, just to get him walking away from the house, and I could shoot him anywhere I wanted to along you know along that route, and that was the plan. And Perry followed the plan you know right away, and he he said he walked uh, with the guy down to this little mom and pop grocery store. Uh, in the neighborhood, and watched him walk into the basement. And as soon as his head got at the level that he could see, you know, just nothing but the back of his head, he pulled the gun out and and emptied it into the guy's head. Now this was with a twenty-two caliber revolver. Perry, as soon as he shot the guy, just saw him drop and ran. And gets back to the place where he was supposed to meet his cousin opens the gun up and realizes the shell casings are all still in the gun. So he starts to cry. And I said, Wayne, why did you start to cry? He said, because I didn't know anything about guns or revolvers or anything like that, and I thought I'd somehow screwed up because the bullets were still in the gun. He didn't realize uh, that. He didn't realize that the shell casings you know, would stay in the, in the revolver. The revolver. He thought and, he had an a automatic. And that's why he cried, though. So you're asking about his sense of morality, if you will. His, his sense of morality had nothing to do with anything but what was important to him at the time. So he didn't cry because he had just killed somebody. He, he cried, cried because, because he thought he had screwed up. <laughs> and had not killed someone. Yeah. So where is he now? What's going on he's, with him he's now? In, he's in Florence, Colorado, uh, doing uh, 23 hours a day, 23 and a half hours a day of solitary confinement. Thank God. And um, he gets a half hour of outside rec. If you've ever been to Florence, uh, it's an interesting prison. <laughs> it's very modern, very, you know, uh, very solid-looking place. 
Uh, outside wreck means that if you can imagine like a silo, maybe a concrete silo where you look straight up for about four blocks of nothing but concrete or four, uh, four floors of nothing but concrete and then you see the sky, that was what he got for outside wreck. And it was about the size of a room. And the only people that he was allowed to do outside rec with would be somebody he wouldn't have any association with. So he's probably doing outside rec with somebody from the Mexican mafia or something like that. And that's how they have him incarcerated out there. Wow. I mean, he was the first person that was supposed to face the death penalty in D.C. Whether or not he would have gotten it really would have kind of depended on how good our case would have been, which I think would have been pretty good. Uh, but he pled. And so what what we do as a society now is we pay about thirty to thirty five thousand dollars a year to incarcerate him if he would have uh been found guilty of uh a capital offense and would have been put to death under the federal death penalty statutes, it would have probably cost us twenty million dollars to put him to death. So, you know, to be honest with you, where he's at is probably a bargain for the people of the United States. So I don't know a lot about D.C. and, you know, what's going on there as far as violent crime, but is it cleaned up now? Is it? It's almost impossible to say it's cleaned up. However, uh, when I was working during the time period that my squad was was doing its thing, uh, the homicide, you know, numbers were in the four to five hundred per year range. Right now, the D.C. homicide uh, amount per year is about 100, 100, 150. So to be honest with you, I think uh, us targeting, and, you know, I have to mention all of my, you know, uh, all of the people on my squad because they really, you know, were responsible for this. I mean, we work case after case after case going after really the most violent offenders in the city. And I'm talking about agents like John Kerr and John Osinski and, and uh, Vince Lissy and, and Mark Giuliano, uh, Donnie Ackerman, guys that you know just worked their tails off to to go after some of the some of the worst people in the city. And as a result of that, uh, our first uh, SAC, uh, who you know sort of gave us our marching orders, told us he wanted a twenty percent drop in the homicide rate, and we did that in our second year. Of operation and the rate, the way we did it was to go after these guys uh, for federal violations of uh, homicide, uh, RICO homicides, and CCE homicides. In other words, homicides that were in the furtherance of either a racketeering or uh, uh, inter- inter- international or interstate drug uh, conspiracy. Anything that we could do to really, you know. Uh, Take on the case of the of the baddest of the bad, and we did it. And you know, uh, our 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 supervisor at the time, Phil Rendon, uh, just set up a program that we all worked uh, with administratively, and really put put together the right people uh, working the right time. And we had this incredible group of cops that worked with us, uh, DC police officers who were homicide detectives like McKinley Williams. And uh, Steve Mann, uh, Pierre Mitchell, uh, guys that had worked for years and years and years in D.C. who knew the city and knew uh, the court system as well as anybody, but uh, just 
went headlong into our task force operations and, and did incredible jobs on closing cases. I mean, we just had an incredibly effective task force of kind of a combination of senior agents like myself and a lot of just aggressive young agents who really cared about what we were doing. To be honest with you, I've never been on a squad like that. I've never been on a, with a group of people like that. We would be working uh, late hours sometimes. It, it was sort of part of the game. You know, you had to come in at 8 or maybe at the latest 9 o'clock in the morning to go to court and do all the things that you had in court. But you ended up working until 8 to 10, 12 at night. And I just remember sitting around at 9 and 10 o'clock at night with this squad of people that just refused to go home. I mean, they were the most incredible people I've ever worked with because they cared deeply about the city. They cared about their community. They cared about, you know, uh, protecting the informants that we had and the witnesses that we had. We couldn't always rely on all of this, the sort of institutional stuff that you expect in federal investigations. Like, for example, in the R, in the R Street crew case, one of our, uh, or five of our targets were the sons of uh, uh, a woman who worked at the U.S. Marshal Service Witness Security Program. Whoa. Are you <laughs> so we were like, Yes. So we were like, well, we, we certainly can't use the Witness Security Program for the R Street crew case. You know, and, you know it, just, it just wouldn't have worked. And, but we had, uh, and, and all of us understood that we needed to protect our witnesses. They were, the, you know, the source of evidence that we just had to absolutely rely on. And in some cases, these weren't, you know, these weren't choir boys or choir girls. They were, you know, they had lived tough lives and they were under a lot of strain and that kind of thing. But they were courageous enough to say, okay, I'll do the right thing here. And so that's what we ended that's why our squad ended up being so successful, is because we were able to prove to them that we could protect them. Um, in the R Street case, I mean, I hate, you know, hate to keep touting that case because it was also another big success of mine. But in that case, we had over 60 to 70 civilian witnesses, and we ended up having to protect them all. And we moved them, and we relocated them, and we set them in places where they knew they would be safe. And as of the time that I retired in 2002, only one of them, of those people that we had, you know, relocated, had had gotten involved in and gotten arrested again. Wow, that's so. Great. To me, that that's was unbelievable. The, that was the success story of our squad, and it was the reason why we could take on somebody like Perry and do it effectively. Because in spite of the fear that the people had, uh, they knew. Ultimately, when it came down to it, that that we were committed to to our community, and we did, a, in my opinion, a great job. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you what your story is, because <laughs> I mean, yeah, you you're, you're talking about this dedication and commitment from your squad, but you also gave. How did that start? I mean, how when did you become an FBI agent, and most importantly, why did you want to become an FBI agent? Well, I, you know, uh, it was a kind of a, a process. I uh, started off in the Army uh, as a 17-year-old as a and went to Vietnam when I was 18. And 
ended up working um, in in as a uh, combat photographer in Vietnam, and then uh, after that, I ended up working uh, intelligence uh, work in in Germany, and that was the first time I met an FBI employee. He was a young young man who was a who had been an FBI clerk before he joined the army, and he just constantly beat my ears about joining the FBI. You ought to join the FBI. You ought to be, you know, in that. And, you know, I was a, a young, stupid kid, a high school graduate from Mobile, Alabama. I had no idea that I'd ever come close to ever qualifying to be, you know, be in the FBI. But, uh, uh, you know, he impressed me, and, and I applied uh, almost immediately out of the service. But I also got a job as a as a professional photographer out of out of uh, out of the service, and I did that for a while, and uh, and was offered the FBI job as a photographer uh, in the FBI lab. But I decided not to do that. I decided to stay at home. I knew that I would have to move to D.C. But um, uh, to make a long story short, I ended up going to college, and you know, at home. And when I graduated from college. Uh, I got involved in criminal invest or criminal justice administration in college, and decided to uh, uh, try again for the FBI. And I went, to, I became, I joined the FBI in 1973, um, in as a technician in the FBI laboratory. And I just, you know, I I loved the work. I loved uh, the whole idea of trying to solve, you know, crimes and helping helping out as much as I could. But I, you know, I was a, a technician uh, in the laboratory. But what I got from that experience was just a real uh, connection with, you know, forensic science and understanding, you know, what needed to be gathered as evidence and how physical evidence could help you in your investigation and all that kind of thing. And so it was part of the learning process. And luckily, I was able to apply and become an agent uh, after uh, six years as a clerk in headquarters. And... um, was assigned to the Washington field office and worked basically street work. I was able to use my training as a forensic photographer and my training in the lab to help my cases. So I always had that sort of combination of understanding forensics, and I was lucky enough to be uh, pretty capable of communicating with people and and developing rapport and, and, you know, being a good interviewer and that kind of thing. So I got to, you know, have a lot of success as an agent early in my career. That's when I worked my way up to trying to get to the, to the most important work I could do for the community. And clearly, in 1988, 1989, it was murder cases in D.C. And I knew we had a federal connection that we could make on these, these cases. And so... Um, I've been sort of named as the grandfather of safe streets, but the reason is is because it was kind of my idea to do that, to to go mm-hmm. after gangs, uh, street gangs, and and charge them with those kinds of federal crimes, so we could dig into the murderers and and really you know uh, sort them out and help the police in any way we could. And my relationship with the police was always positive, always you know solid. And so that made a big difference in terms of developing our task force. Is we, you know, we weren't the kind of FBI agents that you see on TV that everybody says that, you know, uh, watch out, the FBI is going to steal your case from. We didn't do that. We, you know, we worked extremely well with guys like, you know, Don Ladane was 
my partner and still helps me a lot. You know, he's one of the best detectives I ever knew. Who's a DC police officer who ended up becoming a um, an intel guy for the FBI. But you know, Angelo Parisi and Mike Heidenberg and guys that were just good, solid investigative you know officers that worked for the DC police, and they were friends of mine. And so they were the ones that were the catalyst for you know really driving me to 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 do what I could to help the community. And uh, I think that's what we do. I think as 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 a law enforcement agency, it was embarrassing to live in D.C. at that time and be an and be an FBI agent when you knew we were the so-called murder capital of the world and we weren't doing anything right. about it. Well, anyway, it wasn't going to happen on my watch. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of the way I felt about it. And, you know, without the team that we had, I mean, we really had uh, got to look back on it again, and we, we just really had some great people. They cared about the people that they were working for. We lost, you know, some great agents during, you know, the time period that we were doing these cases, Billy Christian and and Martha and um, and, and Mike. Billy Christian was, uh, uh, who worked with us a lot, he was kind of assigned uh as a, uh, a CPA to, to the office, but he also helped out on, you know, surveillance work and did a lot for the cold case unit and that kind of thing. He was killed uh, in the line of duty. And uh, Martha Dixon Martinez and Mike Miller, they were killed on in, in uh, the D.C. Police Headquarters with uh, Hank Daly uh, as a result of a, um, a gang triple homicide investigation that had nothing to do with them but the guy who was partly responsible for that triple homicide came in and decided to shoot the police headquarters up and and kill homicide detectives and uh, he, uh Martha engaged him Martha was a was a close friend and uh she died in the line of duty uh acting as courageously as any of us could ever that was i guess the price that we had to pay for our success to be honest with you that we lost the lives of some great, great people. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it does now, get to me when I think about it, no matter what. Well, we're going to dedicate this episode to Martha Dixon and... Billy Christian and Mike Miller, three okay. agents that were involved in our work. All right, and we'll definitely uh, dedicate this episode to them. You've you know, opened your heart to us already in, in many ways, but is there one last thing that you really want to leave the listeners with well I, I you know i i guess the most important thing to to remember is that um when we do our job correctly we do our job for the community and the witnesses had been involved in in drug activity and that's why they would have seen what they saw but they were really courageous people some of my uh some of my confidential sources and some of the confidential sources of some of the guys on our squad were just unbelievably courageous and they knew that they had the information that if they shared it with us, we would do right with it, and we would make sure that the people that needed to be put in jail and taken off the streets and removed, you know, uh, from the community, we were able to do that. And so it was that combination of those people in the community, even though somebody, you know, somewhere might call them a snitch or a rat or something like that, that without their help, uh, there would probably be you know, thousands of more dead people from D.C. That kind of courage is what drove us and what made us be as effective as we were. And that's the end of the interview.
As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Dan Riley and numerous newspaper articles about his Wayne Silk Perry investigation, including American Gangster Magazine's interview with Wayne Perry. If you enjoyed the interview, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. At the bottom of this episode's show notes at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find all the social media share buttons. And of course, if you're listening to this episode on your phone, you can share it directly from your device. Now, don't go anywhere. Here's my conversation with Jim Fitzgerald about the new miniseries, Manhunt, Unabomber. At the end of most of the episodes, I do a crime fiction recommendation. But I'm going to switch it up today. Instead of talking about a book I've read, let's talk about a TV show I watched. And to discuss that TV show with me is the, I guess you would say, the star of the show, as far as I'm concerned, Jim Fitzgerald. Hey, Jim, how are you? Jerry, it's great to be back on your podcast. I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. So the show was Manhunt Unabomber, and I watched it yesterday, and I thought it was fantastic. What did you think? Well, last night was just the premiere. It was the first two hours. Uh, that was uh, Tuesday night, August 1st, and um, we have uh, uh, six more episodes to go, an hour apiece over the next six weeks. I actually saw it in New York for the first time at the Lincoln Center at a special preview the cast and crew had, and I was invited. And um, I was very impressed with it. Uh, great production quality, uh, great direction, writing, acting. Uh, I got to meet Sam Worthington, Paul Bettany, both, you know, really nice guys. I think Sam does a great job portraying um, Jim Fitzgerald. That's me to remind your listeners. And um, it's very strange to, um, back, in all, uh, back in May, I was in Atlanta uh, where they filmed everything. I'm actually watching Sam sort of pretend to be me back in 1995 saying words that I told the writers I actually said back then and in an office that looked just like a mid-90s bullpen. That's what we FBI agents called our desk and uh, squad areas. And like I said, and the word I keep coming up with, I can't think of a better one. This whole process, Jerry, is surrealistic. It's dreamlike. I'm pinching myself saying, that's really me on the screen, you know, and um and it's not. It's an actor portraying me, but he's he's doing a pretty darn good job at it. Yeah, so I have already interviewed you about uh, your work on the Unabomber case, especially when it comes to forensic linguistics. So I know that there was some creative license in doing this production. I mean, it's still exciting. It's still fascinating to watch all the action. But how was that for you, especially when they're introducing your family and your now girlfriend. And, and my family was very much uh, involved, uh, or, or they certainly approved of it. They were involved in the real thing back in 95 and 96, and unfortunately I was forced to be away from them for a while. But they knew about this upcoming uh, production, and they, they agreed to let their names be used and all that stuff. And it was a tough time for all of us. And, um, and uh, I won't say the Unabomb case you know, caused a divorce between my then wife and I, but uh, it didn't help things anyway. But we're good friends now. Our kids have always been the most important part of our uh, ongoing friendship and relationship. And, uh, and yeah, the Natalie character, who is my girlfriend now, she played no real role. Uh, there was another linguist, an older man by the name of Roger Shy. He uh, is a well-known 
professor at Georgetown University at the time. He had just retired and a forensic linguist. And I actually met with him and we went over the manifesto for a few hours and what are some of the, you know, words and language connections to it. And me not being a linguist back then, I was very impressed with him. I told uh, the screenwriter and director, that's Andrew and Greg, uh, respectively here, and uh, they they both liked this Roger Shy character, but they thought they uh, spruced it up a little bit once they met the real Natalie, my real partner, and they made up a character like her who was doing a postdoc at Stanford, which the real Natalie did, but only a few years later. So that's creative license, dramatic license, whatever you want to call it. And uh, there are some other factors in there. And what I'm telling everybody is my character as portrayed um, very well by Sam Worthington is a composite character. And uh, while the language parts I basically own and anything the viewer sees about uh, linguistics or language, that was more or less me as portrayed by Sam in the miniseries. But there are some other parts. It was actually other actors who did it. But they... They can't keep bringing in different actors and different in different roles to portray all these things. So again, composite character and uh, in terms of the the Fitz character, and um, but nonetheless, it's a story very well told uh, by an uh, about an agency who was really frustrated for 17 years, meaning the FBI just couldn't solve this case. They brought me in to help out as a profiler, and I wound up really kind of switching hats and putting on a linguistic hat or at least a text analyst hat as i said back then and um together we helped solve the case very good now i think the only one the only thing that fbi agents who are watching it may be a little uncomfortable with is the portrayal of some of the supervisors and the sac as being kind of clueless but again that's dramatic license that's to put that tension into the story and as an, an author myself, I understand that. Yeah, and the real bosses were not clueless. Uh, they were very much hands-on. And I'll mention this once here real quick. Uh, as you know, uh, Jerry, I'm writing my sort of life story in a four-book memoir series. And book three was just published in July. And it's A Journey to the Center of the Mind, book three, the first 10 FBI years. And the last chapter is chapter 20. It ends with the Unabomb case. It's a long one. And then I, you know, I, I describe the supervisors and uh, the SAC, the ASAC, and some other agents I work with all very positively. And, yeah, we had some arguments and debates. And are you sure you want to do this? No, do it this way. And, you know, back and forth. But in the long run, we, we came together. And, again, we, uh, we wound up solving the case. And I should mention real quick here, Jerry, I've written three books now. And you're one of the few characters that have made it into two of those three books. And you're a real person. You're not even a composite <laughs> character. What I describe about you is very accurate and, of course, very positive. Yes, I, I proudly uh, tweeted the other day that the, the recruiter that encouraged you and, and helped you become an FBI agent was yours truly, so, and I'm very proud of that. You know, you, and, in a, and you can put on your CV that indirectly you helped solve the Unibomb case. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Okay. Okay, okay, and does that mean I get a cut of the proceeds from this uh, TV series? Sure. Call the Discovery people and tell them you talked to me. <laughs> okay. All right. So tell us again how long the series runs and when it airs. Certainly. Uh, East Coast time, it's 9 o'clock every Tuesday night until mid-September. I'm not even sure I even know the exact ending date, but we'll be building up to that. So it's, uh, uh, it's every Tuesday night starting August 1st. That's the two-hour premiere. Then it's one hour each Tuesday night after that, also at 9 o'clock. 
Obviously, you can watch it in real time or DVR it or on-demand it or whatever. And I think you'll enjoy it. It builds the Fitz character uh, very well. It builds the Unibom character, Ted Kaczynski, very well. And I've always said from day one, even when I worked this case, that, boy, someday if there's a book written or there's a movie made or a miniseries, to me, the truly most fascinating character will, in fact, be Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, the crazed former math professor living in the in the woods in Montana, and but building these bombs and killing people. And uh, and Paul Bettany does a, uh, a does a great job in portraying uh, Ted Kaczynski in that role. So uh, I had some long discussions with him last week in L.A., meaning Paul, not Ted Kaczynski. He won't, he won't talk to me. Great cast: Andrew Sajowski, the head writer; Greg Utanis, the director. And all the people at Discovery did a great job putting this together. And uh, I'm proud of it. And it tells a great story of how the FBI caught a serial bomber. All right. So instead of my crime fiction recommendation this week, I'm doing my crime miniseries recommendation. So Manhunt the Unabomber. I hope you have a chance to watch the miniseries. But if you do want to learn about the actual Unabomber investigation... Check out my interview with Jim Fitzgerald, episode three, or my interview with Max Knoll, who led the Unabomber Task Force in San Francisco. He's episodes 55 and 56. Jim's new book is part of my FBI reading resource, books about the FBI written by FBI agents. To get a copy of the FBI Reading Resource, all you need to do is sign up to be a member of my FBI Retired Case File Review Reader Team. Go to my website and sign up when you see the pop-up. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.